Father, we come to you as our Lord, our Master, as King of the universe, as the one in whom rests the life of every individual on this planet. No matter what others may believe, whatever they may worship or not worship, their lives are in your hands. And Father, it's only by your mercy that you tolerate those that totally reject you and even fight against you. And Lord, we think of your church worldwide. We're grateful for the gospel's penetration into so many areas of the world. And we are thankful for the church which has been born in, in probably virtually every nation of the world. And we ask, Lord, today that you will surround your people with the protecting power of your Holy Spirit, yes, that you will defend them against the evil one and his uh, allies. We pray particularly for those in Russia today who are committed to you and uh, for the missionaries that are laboring there, that you will blunt this new law that no matter what efforts man may set out under the inspiration of the evil one to stop the gospel, there is no way that the gospel will be halted because the word of Jesus Christ will go forth until your kingdom comes. And so, Father, we pray that you will honor the word as it's proclaimed today in Russia, and we ask that you will protect your people there and that you will work in the hearts of those that are high in the Orthodox Church, people who claim to know you, who claim to represent you. We pray, Father, that you'll reveal yourself to them in a mighty way that will transform them and they will have a better understanding what it means to preach the gospel. And we pray for the Islamic world and for those that are laboring there. Lord, we know some of the kids from the college who have gone forth into some of those countries, and we ask, Lord, for their protection, and we ask that you will honor the word there as it is proclaimed, even in as a small voice as is allowed, that it will grow, and that you will dampen down the fires of Islam, that you will cause the people to recognize their need. We're thankful for what we're hearing of, of your actually appearing in dreams to people in various parts of the Islamic world and revealing that Jesus Christ is truly God and for those that are seeking to know you as a result. And we just pray that this will grow and expand. And we ask, Lord, that your people will be defended by you wherever they are in the world today. And Father, as we in our country are not facing that kind of persecution at this time, help us to not just rest in that and uh, sit on our laurels, but to uh, become a people who are mighty in prayer and who trust you to do a great work. Father, I ask you to bless us this morning, to teach us through your word, to be with us throughout this complex, wherever the word is being taught to children and adults and junior and senior high. Uh, we pray for the service at the same time, that you'll be honored in all that is accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the 31st chapter of the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, by its name, sounds like a, a book that ought to be studied by the business department or something. But the book of Numbers, of course, reveals to us a great deal of information about Israel in the period of the wandering and up to the point of the penetration of the land in what is known as the conquest. Numbers chapter 31, as we studied it last week, we began in the chapter last week, uh, describes a holy war. Now today, most of us are familiar with the term holy war relative to Islam and the uh, jihad, which is launched against those that are, you know, the enemies of, of uh, Allah. But this is a holy war that has been ordained by God 
against a nation which has become a, a, a nation of um, individuals who have departed from the light that they had at one time and have now become people who were used by the enemy to attempt to seduce Israel to the worship of a pagan deity, Baal of Peor. We saw last week that as the army of 12,000 was sent forth to deal with Midian, that Moses ordained Phinehas, the son of the high priest, to go with the army and sort of carry the, uh, the emblems of God, as it were, uh, into battle. And you remember Phinehas was the one who exhibited great vigor for God by slaying those who would dare to uh, desecrate his name before the whole congregation. Well, the Israelite army had great success. And the Israelite army now is in the process of returning, and they have returned to the camp, but not into the camp. You remember Moses and the leaders went outside the camp to meet them. They, they were not going to be allowed into the camp yet because they have to go through the ritual of purification. They have, they have shed blood, and they have with them many who are of the pagan people, and so they must stay outside the camp. And of course they were coming and, and they were all joyful for this great victory and they were expecting Moses to come out and just really congratulate them for the wonderful victory. And Moses says, how come you've let these women survive? I mean, the first thing that comes out of his mouth is a word of chastisement for the leaders of the army. Not only have the women been allowed to remain alive, but all of the children too, the male children, have been allowed to remain alive. And we, we talked about reasons for that last week. The order had been extermination. That was God's order. And so they had not fulfilled that. And so what Moses required them to do, and again, this is hard for us in our society today, to comprehend in a society where we don't even want to execute murderers because somehow or other execution is such a terrible thing. It's, it's kind of terminal, you know, and, and so they, there are those who, who feel that you shouldn't even execute a, a, a murderer in our society. Uh, to, to come across this, where now the men, with the heat of battle over, must go out and slay all of the male children and all of the non-virgin women. Let me tell you that it, wasn't, it was not easy for these men to do that. But it was the order that came down from the Almighty. Again, we have, to, we have to compare this to something. We have to compare this to cancer in the body. You know, as we talked about last week, a surgeon cannot allow a particular cancer to remain in the body just because he has some particular feelings towards that organ that has this cancer in it. He's got to remove it. He's got to radically remove it in order to maintain the life of the individual. And so these people who are, who are permeated with this vile worship of Baal of Peor must be eliminated so that they do not bring the cancer into the camp. Because you'll remember that when we studied earlier uh, in Numbers not too long ago, that just a slight contact with Midian was already bringing that worship into the Israelite camp. Reminds me of the old illustration, you've probably heard it many times. If you take a clean glass of water and a glass of black ink, how much black ink does it take to begin to show up in that clear glass of water? Not much. How much clear water does it take to make that black ink clear? And so it would be. Israel, by communication with the Midianites, were not going to be able to clean up the Midianites. But just a few Midianites committed to the vile worship could begin to pollute the Israelite camp. 
And God, knowing this, ordered the extermination of the non-virgin females and all of the males within the Mennonite nation. Once this onerous task was completed, then the soldiers had to undergo the ritual of purification through the waters that were permeated by the ashes of the red heifer. And we related to this last time. You go back to the 19th chapter of Numbers and you understand about that purification rite. Let's begin reading this morning at Numbers 31:21. Then Eleazar the priest said to the men of war who had gone to battle, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded Moses. Only the gold and the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire, and it shall be clean. But it shall be purified with water for impurity. But whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water. And you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean. And afterward you may enter the camp. Israel was allowed to keep the spoils of war. All that they had captured beyond those that they had to slay and all of the things could be kept. But those goods, whether they be textiles or ornaments or whatever they might be, tools, weapons, all of these items that were captured had to undergo ritual cleansing. And as we read about it, we might say, uh, you know, that the fire and the water might be viewed as disinfecting agents. But I don't think that you'll find as you study through this that the thrust of this passage is hygienic. The purpose seems to be symbolic. It's symbolic of the great gulf which exists between the godly and the godless. Often we don't see that gulf because you and I every day rub shoulders with the godless and, and we view them as just having a different opinion than we, maybe. But there's a vast gulf that stands between. And that gulf is unbridgeable except through the work of God. And, and of course, you know, Luke tells us about that when uh, the rich man goes off to the bosom of Abraham and there's this great gulf between him and the poor man that was outside his gate and, and who died also. And that gulf exists throughout history to this very day. And this is portraying that gulf to some extent. The ritual pur purification reminded the people that these implements, these tools, these weapons, this, this, these articles of clothing, whatever they might be, had belonged to a people who were vile in their service of their pagan god. And the former owners of these objects had paid a horrible price for their commitment to Baal of Peor. They had been exterminated. And what is further to note about this is to remember that the Midianites were descended from Midian. Midian was the son of Abraham. Therefore, Midian would have known of Yahweh. He would have known of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was not ignorant. And yet, his people, his descendants, have gone so far from what he had known as to be at the opposite, absolute opposite pole, worshiping one of the most vile forms of pagan paganism as existed in, in the history of the world. So the idea of this ritual purification was hopefully that Israel would view these items now after they've been purified as a gift from God to be used in his honor and no longer to the honor of a pagan deity. Now we're told that the non-flammable objects, such as 
the metal, which is listed here in this, was to be put through a ritual fire and then purified with water. The flammable objects were to be purified in water alone, for obvious reasons. Now, can you imagine how long that took? Every single article of clothing, tool, weapon, ornament, pottery, everything had to pass through either the fire and the water or the, or the water. That was a bit of a time-consuming project. But you know, it gives them time, time to think, time to reflect on what all this means. None of this ritual was instituted by God just for, to, to be hoops that people jump through. All of these rituals were put in place so the people will think about their relationship to God and what it means. They needed to re recognize that sin contaminates everything. God's people are not to do what the later Gnostics would do, and that is to separate the physical from the immaterial, or the material from the immaterial, the physical from the mental or, or the spiritual. You know, the old Gnostics used to believe that uh, what you do in the body is irrelevant because it's only the spirit, the mind, that can commune with God because everything of the flesh is of the devil anyway, so what you do is irrelevant. And, and God is making it quite clear that that is not true. Everything is to be considered holy if you are a holy one of God. There may or may not have been any demonic attachment to these objects. Now there may be some of you who don't believe in that, but those who have served overseas know very well that objects, physical things, can have demonic attachment to them. And we don't know that that is true uh, about this. But we do, do know that whatever goods have been captured have been used to facilitate the lifestyle of a godless people. Through ritual cleansing, these objects could now be used without any sense of guilt on the part of those who are using them because they have been cleansed of any attachment to their former owners. And no remembrance of those former evil owners needs to, to, to be there in the hearts or the minds of the Israelite people. Body soul and spirit are inextricably intertwined. And we all know that. Uh, we all know that when we're really, really sick, sometimes we find it really hard to pray. You know, and sometimes when you're sick, your emotions are way down in the dumps also, and sometimes you're down in the dumps for emotional reasons, and you feel sick besides, and your spirit is sick. I mean, we are body, soul, and spirit, and whatever affects one affects all of the parts of who we are. Therefore, sometimes a physical object can inspire an evil thought. And that evil thought can fester and can therefore impact our spirits. And that's one of the things that God is dealing here with this, this ritual of cleansing. Paul made it clear that the worship of God was to include the offering of our physical bodies. And we all have memorized and often quoted Romans chapter 12. Our bodies are to be given to God as living sacrifices. Now, why would God ask for that if our bodies were ir irrelevant, if it was immaterial, if all that really mattered was where our heart and our spirit was and our bodies could be doing anything and it wouldn't really make any difference? Well, we, of course, know that that is not true. James makes it absolutely so clear that how we walk uh, either supports or denies the faith that we claim. We facilitate that offering of our bodies as living sacrifices to God. 
when we dedicate the physical objects of our lives to Him. Some of you probably have actually had a, like a dedication of your home. You're moving into a home and you've actually had a dedication of that home to the Lord or maybe you've dedicated a new automobile to the Lord or whatever. Um, whether you go through an official kind of ceremony doing that or not, the heart needs to be one of dedication of whatever we have to God. Whatever He has given to us of physical blessings needs to be dedicated to Him because it's really His. If we are holy, those objects become holy for, for His service. That means we don't use them selfishly. It means we use them for His good pleasure. It further means that if He decides you don't need them anymore, that I don't need them anymore, that we give them up willingly. We don't say, oh, no, I can't lose this thing. Sometimes we don't say that, but that's in our hearts what it is. This whole idea, I can't lose this, it's so precious to me. I'm reminded of the persons, you know, you drive past on Sunday morning, not today, of course, but on nice days, you're out there just polishing and shining up their little metal object called an automobile, you know, kind of. We have a neighbor across the street who does this. He's out there, not always on Sunday morning, but often Sunday morning. They're polishing up his little car, you know. Uh, this is, uh, this, he won't call it his idol, but it's uh, probably pretty close to that. If God chooses to take these objects from us, we, I think, should be able to, to relinquish them without bitterness and without self-pity. Oh, poor me, I've lost my car, or whatever, you know, it happens to be. Of course, sometimes we can lose our car because of our own stupidity, too, you know. It isn't that God is taking away from us because we bought something too expensive that we can't afford to pay for, you know. Uh, that's, that's another thing. But uh, using, you know, operating sensibly, sometimes God will even deny things to us for whatever reason we may not understand. This act of purification, therefore, on the part of Israel was, in effect, an act of dedication of all that they have now acquired from Midian and is now going to be theirs. They are dedicating it back to God through this ritual of purification. That's the real point of it. It's not because by going through the fire it's going to wash off a little bit of sin there or wash off with some water a little bit of sin. No. It's, it's an act of dedication on the part of God's people. Verse 25, let's look at Numbers 31 again, reading at verse 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You and Eliezer the priest, and the heads of the fathers' households of the congregation, take account of the booty that was captured, both of man and of animal, and divide the booty between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation, and levy a tax for the Lord from the men of war, who went out to battle, one in five hundred of persons and of cattle and of donkeys and of the sheep. Take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as an offering to the Lord. And from the sons of Israel's half, you shall take one drawn out of every fifty of the persons, of the cattle, of the donkeys, of the sheep, from all the animals, and give them to the Levites who keep charge of the tabernacle of the Lord. And Moses and Eleazar the priest did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now the booty that remained from the spoil which the men of war had plundered was, and these are really amazing figures here, 675,000 sheep, 32,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and of human beings, of the women who had not known a man intimately, all the persons were 32,000. 
And the half, the portion of those who went out to war was as follows. The number of sheep was 337,500. Now we're splitting that, that previous number in half, half going to the soldiers, half going to the rest of the congregation. And the Lord's levy of the sheep was 675. And the cattle were 36,000, from which the Lord's levy was 72. And the donkeys were 30,500, from which the Lord's levy was 61. And the human beings were 16,000, of whom the Lord's levy was 32 persons. And Moses gave the levy, which was the Lord's offering, to Eleazar the priest, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. As for the sons of Israel's half, which Moses separated from the men of war who had gone, from the men who had gone to war, now the congregation's half was 337,500 sheep, 36,000 cattle, 30,500 donkeys, and of human beings, 16,000. And from the sons of Israel's half, Moses took one drawn from every fifty, both of man and of animals, and gave them to the Levites, who kept charge of the tabernacle of the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, there's something underlying this passage which um, doesn't show up, but only comes when you start looking at uh, a criticism of Scripture. One of the criticisms of Scripture is that the numbers are too big. You know, the Israel couldn't possibly have had 600,000 men of war you know, which would have meant the congregation was two to two and a half million. I mean, some people think, how in the world could that many people travel through the desert, you know? Well, the answer, of course, is three letters, G-O-D, but many don't want to credit God with the ability to work in miraculous ways uh, on this planet. But this passage, pretty well, what I'm saying is, there are those who say, well, actually those figures which are given in the Old Testament should be reduced by 10 or possibly 100, a factor of a 10 or 100 so that we're talking about at most 60,000 or maybe 6,000 men of war for Israel. Well, way back when we first started talking about the Exodus, uh, I dealt with the issue of how could Israel, which we know came into Egypt with 70 people, end up with 2 million people at the time of the Exodus? And of course, the answer is birth. <laughs> uh, the answer is 400 years of birth. You take 70 people and you start multiplying them over 400 years and you discover it's not very difficult to come to two to two and a half million people. Not very difficult at all, really. They didn't have birth control in those days and uh, large families were the thing. And so that, that's easy. But on top of that is this passage. Because this passage tells us that these are the figures and the Lord's levy was 500 from one set and 50 from the other and you come down to numbers as small as 72, 61, 32. If you start moving the decimal point over, you end up with nonsense. The Lord's levy of persons was 0.32. Oh, right. And 0.61 donkeys. <laughs> I don't think so, you know. We're talking about figures which in themselves support the actual interpretation of the large numbers of, of Old Testament. I don't think we have to say, oh, I apologize for this. You know, somebody goofed when they translated the Old Testament. No. No, I don't think so at all. I feel that God has superintended the translation and, and the bringing of his word down from century to century that we have the truth here we can read this with absolute confidence, even, even these large numbers that are given in the Old Testament. I, I've mentioned this before too. We have a problem today with scholarship. And the big problem with scholarship is what I like to call arrogance. The arrogance of modern scholars who feel that everybody before their time is not capable of really understanding how this could be or, or properly interpreting. It reminds me of the Renaissance 
When the Renaissance came upon Europe, Renaissance scholars decided that the period just before the Renaissance, they're going to call that the Middle Ages. And they're called the first part of it, they're going to call the Dark Ages because everybody was ignorant back in those times and they didn't know anything. And so uh, Renaissance scholars studied the Greek and Roman period, they studied their period, and they just jumped over to the thousand years in between and said they're irrelevant. Well, you know, that, that's, that's arrogance to say that those who came before you aren't important because they were obviously very important. They wouldn't have had the Renaissance if it hadn't been for the Middle Ages. So modern scholars who will tell you, just recently Josephus has been redeemed. You go back earlier in the 20th century and many scholars thought Josephus was just somebody off the wall. You don't have to believe anything he said. But many things have been supported from other sources now that uh, Josephus has risen in credibility. Again, sometimes you have to really knock on heads before it gets through because of this, this modern sense that we are the know-it-alls and everybody before us was half stupid. Here we find in this particular passage that the booty was to be divided 50-50 between the soldiers who carried out this detestable crusade and the rest of the Israelites who remained in the camp. So the people who risked nothing were to be blessed by God as those who had risked everything. But as we'll see, hadn't really risked everything. The fruits of the victory will go to both equally, the soldiers and those who remained in the camp. But we're also told that both groups were to pay a tribute. And you will notice, however, that the tribute is skewed. The tribute was heavier on those who remained behind in the camp than it was on the soldiers. The soldiers only had to contribute one in 500 of the little gals and of the booty captured to Eliezer the priest, whereas the congregation had to contribute one in 50 of all the objects and of all the persons. So on the congregation, the tax was 10 times what it was on the soldiers, which is an expression, of course, of God's mercy on those who had obeyed and carried out the task as onerous as it was. The numbers in this passage are astounding. We were told previously in this chapter that Moses was to choose 1,000 men from each of the 12 tribes. That's an army of 12,000. 12,000 Israelites were to go and to attack the Midianite camp and to destroy that particular nation. If we look at those figures, we'd say, okay, well, God, being a wise God, certainly wouldn't send a few Israelites against a lot of the enemy. So it was probably fairly equal, or even the Midianites were fewer in number, so that Israel would have an easy time of overwhelming them. But in this passage, we read some statistics uh, particularly beginning around verse, 30, verse 32, which dispel any thought like that. Because we're told that the soldiers captured over 800,000 animals. Well, few people, I suppose, could hurt 800,000, but the further statement is that of the girls who had not known a man, virgin girls, there were 32,000. Well, very, very conservatively, when you're dealing with numbers like this, you can figure that these are probably girls from about 12 down, maybe 11, we, you know, just depend on the circumstances, maybe even a little bit older in some circumstances. Given the normal balance of uh, population cohorts, I think very conservatively we could multiply that figure by four. 
that the number older than that was at least 32,000, and that the males balanced the females, which would give us a minimal figure of 125,000 Midianites. 125,000 Midianites. God had sent 12,000 Israelite soldiers against 125,000 Midianites. Now, half of them are females, so you can cut that half out, and half of them are under 12, you can cut that half out. But that still is going to leave at least 32,000 males of warrior age, which is nearly triple, therefore, the size of the Israelite army. Well, what we see displayed here is the power of God Almighty to accomplish His purpose through His people. Now, sometimes we can be very discouraged that things aren't going well, you know, the church isn't accomplishing what we think it ought to accomplish, or we personally aren't accomplishing what we think we ought to accomplish. You know, it's not ours to accomplish. It's His to accomplish. Ours is to be available. Israel was available. Through Moses, they went because God said go. And they went. They obeyed. And God accomplished His purpose. So, 12,000 Israelites were able to do battle with certainly a larger number of Midianites. Now the Midianites had met everything for evil towards Israel. When they had attempted to seduce Israel, it was for the purpose of getting rid of Israel as, an, as a potential enemy. If they join us, they won't be against us. And, and so they tried to seduce Israel. But God turns this whole thing around for good, for Israel, for his people. And that's what he does all the time. Now, we may think, oh, I've had one disaster after another in my life. Well, God can turn those things around for good. And He will if we trust in Him. And particularly where part of the disaster is our own problem, I mean, is our own failure, if we repent and come to Him, He will turn these things into good in our lives. He does it all the time. And He did it here for Israel. And what is very interesting is He does it for some of the Midianites. What? God provided the opportunity for the redemption of a quarter of the Midianite population. These virgin girls were brought into the Israelite camp and they were distributed throughout the whole Israelite nation. The soldiers were able to take some of the girls home to their family and those who weren't soldiers, they were distributed amongst them too. All of these 32,000 girls were to be absorbed into the Israelite nation. Now, certainly it was true of them, as it was true of every Israelite. Those girls were responsible before God for their own relationship to Him. We have to always remember that although we tend to view Israel as a collective unit here, that each individual Israelite had to have his or her own right relationship with God. They couldn't just accept the blanket offering, you know. Sin of atonement, uh, the offering of atonement, yes, for the nation. And as they believed for them. But if they didn't personally believe, it was of no value to them. And so it will be for these girls. Each girl will be responsible for her own relationship to God. But you see, she's immersed into the community. She becomes a part of the worship of Israel. She begins to see the reality of Yahweh and contrast it with what she had known of the religion of her people before. That there's joy here. There's love here. There's victory here. There's honor here. There's respect here. I'm not going to say none of these girls was exploited. 
but certainly not in the number or to the degree they would have been had they been captured by another pagan nation, or that is by a pagan nation, another than their own nation. I'm sure, because not every Israelite was a true believer, that some of the girls were exploited. But many of them had opportunity to become redeemed, and they never would have had that opportunity had they remained within Midian. So even though they suffered a tragic loss, they suffered the loss of their mothers, the loss of their fathers, the loss of their brothers and their uncles and their male cousins. They lost all of that. But in exchange, they experienced the mercy of God. And you and I know the stories of some pagan women who came within Israel. We know the story of Rahab. And, and of course, we'll be meeting her not too long from now. Well, it'll be a little while from now. But anyway, she was, you know, living on the wall of Jericho. Take us a while before we get Jericho knocked down. But anyway, and, and we know the story of Ruth, the Moabitess. And, and knowing those stories, we have to believe that many of these Midianite girls would grow up to become mothers in Israel. See, God is no respecter of persons. And if a Moabitess will turn her heart over to the living God, he will use her even in the lineage of Messiah. And so you can expect the hope will be here for these Midianite girls. And how much Midianite blood was mixed into Israel? Does it really matter? They were of the same family of Abraham. It wasn't like, you know, you're mixing somebody from South Australia, you know, with somebody from North Greenland. Nobody lives in North Greenland, but I mean in South <laughs> Greenland. They, they were kind of distant cousins to begin with. Now, what about these girls? Well, at first, they had to be basically adopted. They had to be adopted into their families. Now, we have to believe some of them were infants. Some of them were probably only a few months old, or maybe in a few weeks old, little, little bitty, tiny tykes. And, and so they had to be virtually adopted in as a child and raised as a child in the family, whereas the older ones, of course, could be adopted as servants and could work as such within the framework of whatever family they were brought into. Well, let's look at the last passage of this chapter. Then the officers who were over the thousands of the army and the captains of the thousands, this is verse 48 of uh, Numbers 31, 31, 48. And the captains of the hundreds approached Moses. And they said to Moses, Your servants have taken a census of men of war who are in our charge, and no man of us is missing. So we have brought as an offering to the Lord what each man found, <laughs> articles of gold, armlets, bracelets, signet rings, earrings, necklaces, to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. And Moses and Eleazar the priest took the gold from them, all kinds of wrought articles, and all the gold for, of the offering which they offered up to the Lord from the captains of the thousands and the captains of the hundreds was 16,750 shekels. The men of war had taken booty, every man for himself. So Moses and Eliezer, the priest, took the gold from the captains of the thousands and of the hundreds and brought it to the tent of meeting as a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord. It may not appear on surface to be a remarkable passage, but it is a very remarkable passage of Scripture. It reveals something that doesn't happen frequently in Scripture. Not so much because of this free will gift which was given. That's not really too common either, I guess you could say, in Scripture. But it's the reason for the gift 
that's so astounding. The officers of the Israel army, after everything is over with, you know, they're all settled in, they take roll call. And to the amazement of all of the officers, not a single one of the 12,000 men of Israel is missing. They lost not a man in this battle. Now, as I said before, the, the Midianites had to have close to three times the number of warriors altogether, or at least those of warrior age. And even if the attack was a surprise, which it probably was, they would have had time because of the size of the Israelite encampment. They would have had time to catch on and get their weapons and go out and try to resist Israel. I don't think Israel just went through and slew, you know, slew all the men in their beds. But not a single Israelite soldier was killed. No, I mean, there have been similar things in the past. And in the recent history, too, those of you who've read about the various wars that Israel has fought with its surrounding neighbors, and particularly the 1967 war, in which Israel creamed all the surrounding countries with a loss of a few hundred men, but still that's a few hundred men. Nobody is lost here. Not one single man. What does this prove? Well, yes, it, it proves divine intervention. It proves that God was with them, and God was for them, and God was around them, and God was through them. It was God slaying the Midianites. They were simply God's agents. God was wiping out the Midianites. They had total victory. It was a pure, simple miracle. And they knew it. They were dumbfounded. Nobody's? You're sure? Go back, call the roll again. You know? Benjamin, Yehudi, you know, Samuel, <laughs> they're all there. They're all there. Since they were doing what God had commanded them to do, God enabled them to do the task, and in this case, with no loss. Now, we aren't told for sure uh, about Jericho, when the walls of Jericho came down. We aren't told whether any Israelites are lost or not. But if there were, there weren't many probably. We know at Ai, a lot of them were lost. Uh, other battles, there were some losses. But here, God has demonstrated himself in a special way. I think in part for them to know that this hideous task of having to butcher a nation was not to be borne on their shoulders. God was assuming full responsibility. I have commanded it. It is my responsibility. You bear no guilt. This is really important. Because you study these Old Testament passages, sometimes they're very repelling. As you read about Israel having to go out and wipe out the entire nation, man, woman, and child. And then we say, well, that doesn't help any because now we've got a God to blame. I don't think so. Because one of the truths of Scripture is the immutability of God. That He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God we worship now is the God is that Abraham worshipped. He is no different. And uh, Jesus, some say, well, I'd rather worship Jesus than Yahweh. Well, Jesus is Yahweh. And uh, in manifesting the love which he manifested when he walked here and is recorded in the Gospels, that's the same exact love he had back then when he ordered the execution of those people. God did it for the, out of mercy. He didn't do it out of some kind of vile thoughts, you know, because he was a wrathful being and didn't have any mercy at that moment. He did it out of his mercy. When God destroyed the world in the flood of Noah, he did it out of his mercy. 
Because if he didn't do it, the world would have gone to hell in a handbasket. We wouldn't be here today. And he had ordained that we one day walk with him. And then, therefore, out of mercy for us to be here and to be there with him, he did that. The people who died in the flood were irredeemable. They would not have been redeemed. I think this is further evidence of what the scripture teaches over and over again. That if we willingly trust God and obey him implicitly, he will bless us beyond our greatest hopes and dreams. And how do we bring that to our everyday life? Let me just turn to the passage in Colossians that's on your outline there. Colossians chapter 3, you know these verses, verses 23 and 24. I, I try to emphasize this even at the college because, you know, Todd knows, others know that when, when you're, I know myself because I was 20 once, believe it or not, <laughs> and you just don't have the perspective that you have the older you get in life. Verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily for the Lord. It doesn't say whenever you're singing in the choir or teaching a Sunday school class or doing awana. It says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. We don't do what we do so somebody will pat us on the back and say, hey, good job, or because we're going to get paid to do it. We don't do it, hopefully, for human praise. We do it for divine praise and for divine honor. So if we're studying at school to, to be whatever God wants us to be, we do it with all of our might and all of our ability. We don't slack off. We don't flake out. We don't go to the pizza parlor when we're supposed to be studying. Uh, you can apply that in every area of your life. Don't sit down and watch television when you should be preparing for a Sunday school lesson. Well, I'll still have half an hour tonight, Saturday night, you know, 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night to try to scrabble something together. Unfortunately, that's happened. We need to do it as if we're doing it for him. And sometimes that means self-denial. A little bit of fun along the way we have to set aside. What's, what's fun? Glorifying his name is, brings joy and contentment and peace. And that's what really matters. Fun is just a passing thing. In fact, half the time when we're done with fun, we think, why did I do that? It's yucky. It isn't even, you know, thinking back is not even fun. Well, we'll pick up there next week.